The Commonwealth Club of California congratulates the class of 2021. We know how much you want to stay connected with the issues and influencers that matter most. That's why we are offering all high school and college graduates in the class of 2021 a free one-year membership to the club. From politics to social justice, climate to pop culture, membership at the Commonwealth Club opens up new worlds of learning and the chance to interact in person and online with today's headline makers and people like yourselves who care about what's going on in the world. Claim your free membership at commonwealthclub.org slash grads. And join us. We look forward to seeing you at the club. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. My name is Dr. Patrick O'Reilly. I am chair of the Psychology Forum at the club, and I'm genuinely very, very delighted and honored to, to host this presentation. Um, if you don't mind, I'm going to read the, <clears throat> uh, the biographies of our four speakers because their accomplishments are, are academically really notable. First, though, that since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic discrimination, pandemic, discrimination, verbal assaults, and physical violence against members of the Asian Americans and Pacific Islands community have skyrocketed, disproportionately harming vulnerable members of the community, including women, children, and elders. This racism takes its toll. In today's program, the speakers will discuss discrimination and implicit bias and present actionable ways to disrupt the process and how to feel safe when speaking up against racism. We have four speakers. The first is Dr. Sarah Nguyen, an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry and biobehavioral sciences at the University of California, Los Angeles, and the associate director of the Integrative Psychiatric Clinic. <clears throat> she is passionate about teaching and has won many awards, including the Clinical Teaching Award, a Kindness Award, which I really like, and Super Doctor Southern California Rising Stars in 2021. Uh, Dr. Quang Dang is a geriatric psychiatrist at Palo Alto Medical Foundation. She studied at Harvard, New York Medical College, and UCSF, and has served in numerous national leadership roles in the American Psychiatric Association. Dr. Tam Nguyen is a clinical psychologist and director of the Ambulatory and Addiction Care at Sutter Health. She has a deep passion for identifying needs within the community, understanding the psychological impact of trauma, and creating strategies and services to improve the health of the whole person. Um, Dr. Jennifer Tran is a full-spectrum family med medicine doctor at the Palo Alto Medical Foundation. She went to medical school at Doro University in California and completed a residency training at the Stanford O'Connor Family Medicine Residency Program. Her patients enjoy her calm and collaborative approach to medicine. So without for further ado, I would like to introduce Dr. Nguyen, who will be the first speaker. Thank you. Thank you so much, Patrick, and everyone here for having us. Um, it's such an honor to be on this panel with such incredible women leaders and women of color. So today we are going to talk about violence against the Asian American Pacific Islander um, AAPI community and rising above the hate. So I'm going to first start by describing the problem, and we will launch into what leaders can do to support their AAPI staff, some strategies to disrupt the implicit bias, and ways that we can support each other. Before we can think of ways to address AAPI violence, it's first very important to understand the problem. So what I'm going to do in the next 10 minutes is really just go over some definitions 
and really understand what is driving a lot of um, the things we're experiencing. So when we think of racial violence, violence implies a physical violence. So this is racially motivated physical violence, but it can also include forms of racist hate speech, microaggressions, dehumanization, and stereotypes, which are things that we may not necessarily think about when we think of racial violence. But this is very important because it can be very severe and traumatic and ultimately damage our wellness and trust. And so there's this, some of you may have heard of this concept, the model minority myth and stereotypes. And I think it's really important to spend a few minutes on this. So Asian Americans are stereotyped and associated with words such as being quiet, hardworking, studious, economically successful. And to some of us, it actually sounds like a really good thing. It may, it may sound advantageous to be considered these things, but really it's harmful and dangerous. So the model minority myth was a social construct that was actually created in the 1960s. And it was created with the intention of pitting Blacks and Asian Americans against each other and really to kind of blame Blacks for poverty and circumstances. And this reality of the model minority myth was that it was based on selective immigration policy, which allowed for Asians with higher socioeconomic status and education to come here um, to the United States and pitted it against slavery and discrimination against Blacks, which represent lower socioeconomic status and lower education. And so despite the changes in immigration policy, the model minority myth actually persists and continues despite this. And the real struggle is that we Asian Americans experience ongoing, um, it, it obscures basically our experiences because it renders us invisible to the broader society. And when we use the term Asian Americans, even though it's commonly used, I find it to be somewhat problematic because it kind of negates the diversity of experiences within Asian Americans um, because we are a heterogeneous group. So when we think of subgroups, for example, the Hmong or the Cambodians, they're among the most impoverished and marginalized groups in our society. But this is obscured because we're all grouped together as Asian Americans, and um, we can be perceived as more economically successful, such as the Chinese or the Japanese. And so really, there's this fallacy that's created that Asian Americans as a whole don't experience struggle or racial discrimination, and even the words and stereotypes that are used suggest an upward mobility. And so I think it's important for us to be aware of this. And so I had mentioned microaggressions as being one of the ways that um, represents racial violence. So this is an experience of racism, and this is probably something you've encountered or heard about, but what is microaggression? So it's an indirect subtle or unintentional discrimination against members of a marginalized group. And it may be difficult to really see this behavior as damaging, but when we take a step back, it does have long-term emotional and psychological consequences. And so some examples of these, just to kind of expand on how it can be very subtle or unintentional, is saying things like, you speak excellent English, all lives matter, everyone can succeed if you just work hard enough, or you're so articulate, or even the seemingly innocent question, where are you from? So going on that microaggression of where are you from, uh, a recent API poll um, showed that over 
64% of Asian Americans were asked, assuming that we weren't from the United States, where are you from? And 51% were asked this question um, who were deemed Pacific Islanders. So why is this important? Because asking this question, where are you from, implies this association with this perpetual foreigner myth that we don't belong here. And is this something that's a driver of racial exclusion? And looking at the data further, 45% of Asian Americans experienced people acting around them as if they didn't speak English. And 20% or one in five were suggested that they whiten or Americanize their names. So is this an, more examples of just trying to fit in? So when we think of racism, it's very uncomfortable to think that racism is alive and well in the workplace. But looking at another survey, 60% of Blacks and 42% of Asian respondents experience racism at work. And an even greater percentage, 69% 50 of Blacks, 53% of Asians, and 45% of white employees witnessed a racist incident at work. That's almost half and over half of the employees. And so what is this telling us about racism in the workplace? And kind of going on the data that I presented in the last slide, in a 2016 study, 31% of Black professionals and 40% of Asian professionals actually whitened their resumes. So in terms of experiences of racism, similar to the microaggressions, it can occur without conscious awareness or intent. And in looking at a little bit of an older study in 2011, whites believed that anti-Black racism was decreasing as anti-white racism increased. And a similar study suggested that over one half to two thirds of whites considered discrimination against whites as big a problem as those against black indigenous people of color. And for us as physicians, especially, this idea that racism exists and we have to be conscious of it is it can be so uncomfortable that just recently in a JAMA podcast of a prestigious medical journal in 2021, the editor quoted, was quoted saying, no physician is racist. So how can there be structural racism in healthcare? And so for those who don't know, structural racism is something that is a very hot topic right now, but they've repeatedly said that structural racism alienates white people and so released this statement that has been quite controversial. So ultimately, experience of racism can weaken support for diversity policies and really undermine efforts to address this. And it really obstructs recruitment and retention of a more diverse employee group or um, system that we're working in. So now that we've recognized this and we're identifying this, why don't employees speak up? So why don't employees speak up in general when there's something challenging? There is always this fear of being viewed negatively, feeling as though we don't have an, enough experience to speak up, feeling that the organization's hierarchy can be very intimidating and unsupportive. And so we all experience these things. But now take these things and add a racial component how much more difficult and challenging do you think this could be to speak up? So this brings me to the topic of psychological safety in the workplace. So in order for us to even start encouraging employees to speak up, we have to understand this concept of psychological safety. Now, what does that mean? And so this refers to the idea that 
there's a belief that our environment is safe for us to speak up without the risk of punishment or humiliation. And so the collective outcome is based on the team itself. And so how is this different from trust? So when I think of psychological safety, I think of it as being between an individual and a team or a group of people, as opposed to trust where it's just feeling safe between two individuals. So one could start seeing that this is building a culture or an environment of safety. Why is this important? If we feel comfortable admitting our mistakes, we can better learn from our failures. And if we learn from our failures, everyone starts sharing more and more ideas and we can have continued growth, innovation, and better decision-making. This all sounds wonderful, doesn't it? There are challenges because Feeling psychologically safe enough or having trust, it really touches on deep-seated aspects of our identity, our values, our choices. And for a lot of us, it may seem more personal and risky to speak up, especially about mistakes or, quote, failures. And so now that we've covered the basics and identified some definitions, how can we be how can we come up with some strategies? So in this next part, Dr. Quang Dang will speak about how employers can support their AAPI staff. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much, Dr. Sarah Nguyen, for that wonderful and informative introduction. Um, so hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Quang Dang, and I thank all of you for taking the time to be here today. Having attended Commonwealth Club events myself, I know that Commonwealth Club members are among the most engaged leaders and influencers in your respective communities. And for the next 10 minutes, I'll be sharing tips about how you as leaders and influencers in your communities, and as well as in businesses and companies of all sizes, can effectively support AAPI employees and colleagues. Although this information is somewhat geared towards those with decision-making power to shape policies, it is also extremely relevant to anyone who cares about the well-being of their community. The most important message I would like for you to come away with, so I'm sort of doing the takeaway at the beginning, is that everything all of you do and say in the wake of violence and hate crimes against the AAPI community really truly matters. And it doesn't just matter to your AAPI neighbors, friends, and colleagues. It matters to people of all ethnic and cultural backgrounds. And why is that? So first, there are three major reasons. Many Asian Americans don't tend to speak up or speak out. And this may be tr more true among the older generations. Secondly, while some may not speak out, they are likely to be hyper aware and are observing who is speaking up about this issue. Thirdly, your audience is your entire organization. And since many of you work in industry leading companies, your, lar your larger audience is the global community. You are part of complex cross-cultural institutions and you are creating new norms. Your policies, actions, and inactions, words, and silence are defining and impactful. So your actions matter more than you might realize. And I hope to empower you today with concrete actions you can take, sharing lessons that I have learned from leading various groups and working with hundreds of patients for the past 15 years. So the very first step is acknowledgement. Leaders at all levels should send a clear message that anti-AAPI racism is absolutely unacceptable. 
as a psychiatrist, a common theme I've heard from my patients was surprise and disappointment over leaders being silent. And I want to note that this is coming from both AAPI and non-AAPI patients. I encourage leaders at all levels to check in at the very least with their AAPI employees and colleagues, but ideally with all employees, as it may not be obvious who has ties with the AAPI community and who is being affected. In addition, bringing it up, as, uh, bring it up with all employees sets the tone that this issue is universally important. You can say something as simple as, the violence against the AAPI community has been very upsetting to me. I wanted to check in to see how it has affected you. This is a great example of how to establish psychological safety in the workplace, which Dr. Nguyen so eloquently talked about. I urge you to be proactive, to not wait for your colleagues and employees to bring it up. The traditional Asian culture, and I know I'm overgeneralizing here to make a point, does not lend itself to speaking out, to talking about our pain. So we need your help in initiating the conversation and making it okay to share. In my consulting work with a CEO of a Bay Area company, he asked me, is this kind of conversation best done through one-on-ones or in a group setting? What about sending out all team emails? If the CEO has already said or, or emailed something, is there a risk of communication fatigue? My emphatic answer to that is no, there is not a risk of communication fatigue. For this particular topic of AA, violence against the AAPI community, the risk is much greater of your Asian American employees feeling dismissed or forgotten and feeling like it is not being given enough attention. Be available. So after acknowledgement of the issue, step two is to be available to talk about the sensitive topic. Also, remember that support can come in various forms, such as one-to-one scheduled meetings, having a daily drop-in time where employees are encouraged to stop by, and also try to make available a wide range of resources for support. I'll share with you quite candidly that some Asian Americans probably will not take advantage of employee assistance programs or therapy resources due to the deeply ingrained cultural stigma of Uh, mental health issues. But there are numerous online resources focused on AAPI mental health via Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and so on, that many of my own patients have found to be incredibly helpful, which they can access privately on their own time. I highly recommend that you find a good resource list to share. Many have been made already. So now that we've talked about leaders acknowledging the issue about violence against the AAPI community, and making yourself to yourselves as leaders available, let's build on that and talk about the numerous ways that your organization can create multiple types of voluntary spaces and opportunities for connection and meaningful discussion. You can create Zoom support groups for all employees, as well as Zoom support groups that are dedicated solely for AAPI employees. These can be great as a way to provide ongoing longer term support and a sense of community. I do recommend hiring a skilled practitioner from outside the company to lead the support groups as they will be able to navigate the complicated work terrain with more ease than someone who is employed within the company. Slack channels and online discussion forums can also be a good way for people to participate if the Zoom support groups are a bit too anxiety provoking 
as they might be for some people who, aren't, who just aren't ready to talk about their experience um, quite yet. One of the most common things I've heard from my Asian American and Pacific Islander patients regarding the violence is that they feel scared, they feel isolated, angry, and they really can't help but feel that society at large doesn't really care about them. With one of the company support groups I led recently, one of the most positive outcomes was that nearly the entire C-suite, almost all of them, except for one, were of non-Asian American and Pacific Islander descent. They were basically mostly Caucasian men. And um, not only did they attend the group, but they were forthcoming and vulnerable when they shared about how upset, angry, helpless, embarrassed, ashamed even, and confused uh, about the violence against Asian Americans. This fostered psychological safety for the entire group and really set the tone for what ended up being an incredibly touching and healing experience. So leaders have a powerful opportunity to be role models in how we can all connect in a meaningful way about something that, that truly affects us all. And I urge all of you here to err on the side of reaching out and speaking out rather than to stay quiet out of the fear of not saying the right thing. Your speech and actions will be noticed and appreciated. Next slide, please. As leaders, you have the power to make commitments to long-term plans for the organization to help affect real change. You have many options, such as creating a diversity, equity, and inclusion committee, committee if you don't already have one. And then that group can be in charge of leading longer term efforts to improve hiring practices, provide anti-racism training, and do things like enroll your company in very helpful bystander training. Your organization can also make donations to nonprofits that have been working for decades to support the AAPI community. Next slide, please. So to build on Dr. Nguyen's topic of how racism shows up in the workplace, I'd like to share this quote by Dr. Rhea Boyd who is a pediatrician at Palo Alto Medical Foundation where I work. Racism drives racial health inequities and shapes our workforce composition, our workplace culture, and how we as a society distribute resources and power. We all have our own unconscious and, con and conscious biases about others, which can lead us all to think and behave in racist ways, even if that's not the intention. One of the examples I'd like to highlight here is that we can have differential behaviors that come from assumptions about our employees and colleagues based on their race and gender. For example, and this is uh, you know, a thought that one might have, Jenny, who happens to be Chinese American, is okay with doing the extra work. She never complains. Plus, she's just such a hard worker anyway, and she'll do a great job. So this is one way, for example, that the model minority myth can play out. So what to do when racism does come up? For overt racist behavior, HR should definitely have a clear algorithm for how to report incidents, a process for debriefing these incidents, and consequences for racist behaviors amongst employees and staff. In addition, at your organizations, you can, you can create a collective culture of responsibility to be upstanders for each other. As you will hear more from Dr. Tran later on, Asian American culture prioritizes harmony over conflict. And so they may be less likely to speak out and confront racist behavior when it's happening. So you can all help out when you observe racist behavior amongst your colleagues, even if it isn't happening to you directly, speak up. 
For racist behavior that occurs outside of the workplace, there are also great bystander trainings that companies can enroll in so that everyone can learn what to do when witnessing physical violence or verbal harassment in public. Hollaback is an organization that has been doing anti-street harassment training since 2005. And I encourage all of you to take a look at their website, which not only teaches people how to help the target of harassment in a safe manner, but also has a great deal of valuable information on workplace harassment. So I would like to finish by making the business case for employers to take the mental health of their employees seriously. As Dr. Nguyen said, racism affects our mental health. These violent attacks on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders have undoubtedly impacted the mental health of your employees, which means, de which means decreased productivity, increased absenteeism, and dis increased disability costs. The bottom line is that investing in a mentally healthy workforce is good for everyone, full stop, but it is also good for business. Now I'm going to hand it off to Dr. Tam Nguyen, who is going to continue by giving us strategies to disrupt workplace discrimination. Thank you, Dr. Klingdang. Um, it's uh, my pleasure, as, as you said, to be here with all of you um, as part of the panelists uh, in this discussion, as well as with all of the, the members of the Commonwealth Club. And thank you, Patrick, for the invitation to talk on this really important topic. Um, I'm going to be focusing my talk or, or my section of the talk on, on things that we can do as individuals uh, to disrupt our unconscious bias, as Dr. Quangdang had labeled or called it, um, and also ways in which we may be able to help others disrupt potential stereotypes or um, uh, you know, heuristics that's, that we've developed over time or learned over time as we're getting to know one each other, uh, one each other in small groups as well as larger groups. Um, so good morning, everyone. My name is Tam Nguyen, and I'm a psychologist and also the director of Ambulatory and Addiction Care Services. Uh, this is an example about how I typically might introduce myself in a, in a workplace meeting when it's uh, in, the, in a context of meeting someone new or groups of people new. And what I've received in response um, have been uh, responses including, hi, Tammy, it's good to meet you, or Thanks, Tammy. Uh, welcome. Or, hi, Tammy. Glad you can join us. Uh, each time this happens, at first, I, I notice the physical sensations that show up in my body. Um, I notice myself speaking faster or my heart racing. I notice myself perhaps getting a little warmer in my cheeks and in my face. Um, and then I notice my automatic thoughts. Have they come pretty quickly? And I think to myself, did I hear that right? Um, should I correct them? Why did he or she call me that? Um, is, is she perhaps trying to make me feel more comfortable? Um, should I repeat myself and let them know that my name is Tam and not Tammy? Um, perhaps they're using it as a term of endearment. Uh, or was that said because I'm Asian and female? Um, it's probably nothing, I tell myself. Um, I'm reading more into it. I shouldn't make a big deal about it. If I say something, I might make others feel uncomfortable. And you may imagine, depending on the situation, perhaps what's happening, happening for me that day, what's happening for others in, in the room that I'm with, um, I might not say anything at all and continue. Other times I've paused um, and, I, and I correct them and say, actually, my name is Tam. Uh, more often than not, though, what I do is I dismiss it, pretend that it didn't matter, and I move on. 
This keeps me wondering and also reinforces fears of power differentials related to gender, race, and ethnicity that may occur in the workplace. And as we've all talked about, it's an uncomfortable topic to think about and one that's really important um, to raise to the surface. I use uh, the personal example of how I introduce myself and how others might restructure my name uh, to illustrate how microaggression or implicit bias can show up in the workplace. For the majority of the instances, I believe that the individuals who referred to me as Tammy acted without conscious awareness or intent. In other words, no harm was intended. That's how I rationalize my decision to ignore or let it go. At the same time, a part of me has instinctively felt that it was meant to remind me that I was less than or different. Since becoming a parent uh, and with the recent rise in Asian hate crimes um, within our communities, I've had to reflect on the difficult and uncomfortable topic uh, of racism and discrimination and how it shows up in different aspects of my life. Um, and even though it's harder to ignore, um, I'm gonna to try to do the thing that I tell my kids to do, which is show up and lean in and have the conversation. Uh, discrimination is conceptualized as a biopsychosocial stressor and a product of the person environment interaction or transaction. And so as you see on the slide here, it involves three primary components. There's a situation that occurs, the one that I described is me introducing myself with a group of colleagues in the workplace. Uh, I might, and I noticed the first thing was my emotional reaction, but typically our emotional reactions are brought on or triggered by automatic thoughts that come up in our minds, uh, what I call cognitive appraisals of the situation. And these automatic thoughts are influenced based on our learned history, what we learned growing up, um, as well as things uh, that we learned that happened immediately right before that particular situation. Um, and based on our automatic thoughts and what we feel, we might have a behavioral response. So in the case of my example, um, if I felt sort of nervous, uh, the natural behavioral um, feeling is to feel, feel nervous and, and the behavioral response with feeling nervous is to retreat or to freeze or to fight. And in most cases, when you think about survival, uh, the best strategy of survival uh, is to ignore, right, or to hide. Um, and so that's typically what we do because it increases our likelihood of survival. Um, in an interaction uh, between two or more people, um, I believe it's the intersection of my own implicit bias with, with that of the others that can lead to misunderstandings and a need to, uh, and a need to defend often how we're feeling or what we want to do. And oftentimes, this can lead to further distancing between those two people. Um, so what I want to talk about next is I'm going to offer two specific strategies, one that you can use yourself to perhaps disrupt the implicit bias or automatic thoughts that you might have um, that's based on experiences you had growing up, um, as well as another strategy uh, that you can use um, in, large in large settings in which there's groups of people that are meeting um, where we could disrupt others' implicit bias or um, automatic uh, unhelpful thoughts. Next slide, please. 
So these are um, four questions uh, that I offer uh, that you can ask yourself in a situation in which you're wondering what happened here and how can I better understand what I experienced internally, things that I am aware that's happening for me but others may not be. Um, so the first question is, what happened and what did I most struggle with? Uh, second question is, what information supports my thoughts? Uh, information in the environment, the nonverbals, as well as verbal information that may have occurred in that context. What information does not support my thoughts? And lastly, from here and now, what matters most to me about the situation and how I responded? What's the impact of not disrupting the unhelpful cycle? For me, the impacts have been reinforcing unhelpful racial stereotypes, behaviors consistent with retreating and withdrawing, questioning of my right to be where I am and, what, and do what I'm doing, unfair judgment of others, and not giving us a chance to grow together. We can begin to see the domino effect of these behaviors when uh, we add them uh, up together over time. And so uh, I really encourage the use of these four questions just as a moment to pause and reflect. Uh, and oftentimes just having that ability to pause allows us to separate or give us some space between what we're experiencing um, and, uh, and what we might wanna do in response so that it can be most helpful to the situation in the moment as well as moving forward. Uh, so this is an activity called the Code of Arms. It's an activity uh, that I often use um, in large group settings um, uh, in the workplace uh, where I'm wanting to get to know my colleagues and others a little more deeply and fully. Uh, the Code of Arms uh, is another way that one can introduce uh, oneself to others um, in, in any kind of large group setting. So in the example that I used at the beginning, you know, we're pretty um, standard and brief when we introduce ourselves. Uh, and so what happens naturally is others who are meeting us for the first time are going to use that information that we verbally shared along with the way we look right? Um, and what are nonverbals in order to get a really quick assessment or appraisal of who we are as individuals. Hopefully this activity called the Coat of Arms will help um, the others learn more about you um, and naturally sort of disrupt some of those stereotypes or automatic um, uh, thoughts that they might have uh, of you based on, on the way you look or, or the way that you sound, et cetera. So uh, I'll take a moment just to describe the activity. You can see on, on the left, it's you say your first name, it's an activity in which you actually use a piece of paper um, and you draw out uh, pictures of what you were doing at the age of 10 or what was most important to you during that time in your life. Um, and then in the upper right-hand corner, what was happening for you 10 years ago in your life? What were some of the main themes, some of the main challenges, successes? What's happening now um, for you? And then what you hope to be happening 10 years from now or where you hope your life to be 10 years from now? Um, and, the, and the rules for the um, activity are really simple. No words and only pictures. Um, and given that we've shifted to a lot of these Zoom meetings, what I found is people have been um, cutting and pasting pictures uh, on the internet. So the, the recommendation and encouragement is to draw those pictures out yourself um, as, as a way to introduce yourself. Uh, so, so next slide, please. 
Uh, and this is my own coat of arms. Um, and so I'm going to try one more time to introduce myself to all of you. Uh, hello, my name's Tam Nguyen. Uh, at the age of 10, what you see in, in the pictures is below is my, my attempt to draw a stack of books. I love to read. I'm a natural introvert. And so what I was drawn to was reading and learning. Um, what was really important and in my life then was my family. You can see I have a cross and a heart. We're Catholic. Um, my parents had eight kids, four boys and four girls. And I'm the third um, in the order of the eight, although I function a lot like the older sister because uh, my oldest sister is, um, went on to become a, a, a nun. Uh, and so left very young when, when, um, in our family. She, she left to, to have the religious life when she was 14. Um, and so that was an important part of my life. Uh, I loved being part of a big family and I hated it at the same time. Uh, people always knew where we were because we were really loud uh, and we just really couldn't help ourselves. Um, so 10 years ago, what you see there um, is a picture of the Gulf of Mexico and my attempt to draw an, an oil rig. I uh, had gone out to Biloxi, Mississippi as a um, consultant with the American Red Cross when the Deepwater Horizon oil spill had happened. Uh, there was um, two, you know, two groups of people that were significantly impacted by the oil spill, and, and one of them uh, was Vietnamese American fishermen and their families. Uh, so I spent about a month out there uh, to, do, um, to pro provide support um, and offer uh, some strategies for um, these fishermen and their families to help um, continue to uh, thrive and survive during this challenging time in their lives. Uh, during this time was also when I had gotten married. Uh, I lost my father about this time. So there was this cycle of birth um, and also loss that was happening in my life and also giving back to my community um, in, in ways that were really important to me. The bottom left is what's happening now. Um, that's my attempt at a picture frame. It's red to represent sort of the COVID coronavirus. Um, and uh, inside the picture frame is my son, who's eight, my daughter, who's five and a half, and our dog, who is the eldest. Uh, he's nine. Um, and uh, my husband always laughs because he says, I'm not included in this picture frame. And, and that, that was unintentional. Um, but uh, he, of course, is, is a part of that. Um, and it's been there. They are a huge part of my life today. Uh, and of course, always will be. But this focus around shifting uh, the way that we lived our lives, uh, the way that we live, the way that we work as in response to the public health emergency, uh, it really has created some challenges. Uh, what I've noticed is we've shifted. Uh, we've learned to do that together. And I do believe as a family, we've grown stronger. Uh, and I also believe as a community, we've grown stronger um, going through this challenge together. Um, and then lastly, the bottom right is 10 years from now. Uh, I hope to continue to be reading and learning um, and continuing to be curious um, and then also to travel. My grandpa who lives in Vietnam is 102. And so I hope, I hope uh, I'll be able to take my kids to see him there um, and my grandmother who is 92. Uh, so um, so that, that's my hopeful future um, 10 years from now. Uh, and thank you. Next slide. Uh, so now I'm really excited to introduce Dr. Jennifer Tran uh, to speak more specifically on ways that we can support each other um, during these challenging times. Thank you so much for sharing your talk, Dr. Nguyen. I, well, first of all, thank you for sharing your coat of arms. I love this activity and I'm just taking notes too on how we're going to do it for our next team building event. 
So good morning, everybody. I'm Dr. Jennifer Tran. I'm a family medicine doctor and really honored to be here with you today. We just heard about what racism, particularly AAPI racism, can look like in the workplace and what employers and leaders can do to help support their AAPI community. So now let's talk about what you can do here to also support the AAPI community. Next slide, please. So how does one cope with anxiety and fear? So first, we need to acknowledge and name the emotion. Anger, fear, sadness, disbelief, grief. This is also crucial to do with our children. Some children are still learning about their feelings and then the spectrum of feelings. So this can be really overwhelming for them. Parents can and should help put words to a child's experience. And by helping children label feelings, we give them a vocabulary to articulate their inner experiences. Give yourself time and space to think, process, and heal. Speak up and speak out about how you feel. Some of us are great at communicating out loud, and some of us do this by writing, drawing, playing music. Have allies. These are your family members, your friends, coworkers, church group. Build a community around you. Have a safety plan for your family. Go to grocery stores or parks and groups or with another friend or family member. And if you are by yourself, consider sharing your location with trusted friends or family members. Have a quick speed dial to an emergency person or the police. And be aware of your surrounding and limit your distractions if you're in an unfamiliar place. Reach out to your primary care doctor and your mental health provider if you need further guidance. Next slide, please. In 2019, there are over 20 million people in the United States who identify as AAPI. 15% of our AAPI community, it's almost 3 million, have reported having a mental illness in 2019. And I'm sure this percentage is now much higher given the very stressful year we've all had and are still having. And yet, out of the 3 million people, only about 8.6% sought any type of mental health service or resource compared to 15% of the general population, which I would argue is still pretty low. So why don't we seek help? In 2001, Asian American women were asked similar questions in a study. And this is what they had reported. Conflicting cultural values would impact their sense of control over life decisions. They had lower self-esteem from being unable to meet bias and unrealistic standards. They reported learned silence, meaning that they had witnessed their own family members never talk about mental health. They reported a fear of stigma for themselves, but more so for their families. So that was 2001. It's 2021, it's 20 years later. Has anything changed? And sadly, not really. I reached out to some of my own family members and friends and asked them why. And these were some of the answers that I had collected. It can be difficult for us to admit that there is a problem. Admitting to a problem shows weakness. There is still mental health stigma. My parents have been in this no such thing as depression, just suck it up generation. But now they are slowly starting to see that depression is a real illness with health consequences. 
we worry our mental health will affect our job performance. And we worry about what others will think of us if they knew. Some of us think that we can power through it. And to be fair, some of us can manage with good sleep and exercise, but many of us need something more. Our cultural upbringings have been deeply ingrained in many of us, and that's hard to change. How many of you were told to not cry or to not show emotion? How many of you were raised to be quiet, to look away, and to keep your head down? How many of you were taught to value internalized pain? So knowing this, what can you do? We need to recognize and accept that there is no physical health without mental health. We need to prioritize mental health and treat it with the same importance that we do with cancer, heart disease, and even COVID-19. We should not wait for a crisis to do something. Start today. Preventative medicine is important for mental health too. Give yourself permission to take care of yourself. Feel empowered to eat healthier, to get adequate sleep, to exercise, to manage your stress. Keep supportive people around you. There's a Vietnamese proverb that I love. The little translation is, when you're near ink, it's dark. And when you're near light, it's bright. Metaphorically, it also means that you want to keep people who are good influences near you so that you can also emulate their good influences. Last but not least, talk to your doctor and or your mental health professional. We're here to help. Next slide, please. So this concludes our presentation, but this is just the beginning of our conversation. There is so much more that needs to be said, but we hope this can be the start and open the door to many, many more conversations in the near future. So with that, I'll hand it back to Patrick. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Tran. This is absolutely a wonderful presentation. The comments that I've got have been no questions thus far. Well, all just comments about how much they were enjoying this. They're watching it on, on YouTube. And, um, and if you don't mind, may I ask each of you, starting in the order you spoke, just to uh, give us one takeaway that the, the myself and the other people watching this can, can consider after the presentation's over. So for me, I think my takeaway is that I think we should not underestimate this moment of opportunity. And I think although it can feel very uncomfortable, we first have to become aware and acknowledge ways that racism exists and how it influences our behaviors. Because ultimately we all have the power to create meaningful change. My takeaway um, uh, is that we can all, uh, AAPI and non-AAPI uh, members of the community can support each other. Um, and what I'm about to say may seem counterintuitive. For those of you who are not of AAPI descent, we need you more than ever. You have a powerful role in supporting your AAPI friends and coworkers and neighbors. So please don't miss an opportunity to speak up and create space for them. 
Um, and my takeaway as a Bay Area native uh, and a Warriors fan is we are uh, stronger together and strength in numbers. Uh, to say, let's pause, um, notice our own internal automatic thoughts, how we're responding to others, and, uh, and perhaps give uh, the, the others the benefit of the doubt that we're all trying to figure this out together. So to the extent that we could really um, lean in and um, look at ways, things that we share, shared challenges, um, shared experiences, shared successes, versus looking first at what differentiates us. How are we different? How are we better than or less than uh, would be my takeaway. Uh, and one that I think um, hopefully as, a, as, a, as the more we do this, the more we begin to really grow together uh, as a group. And my takeaway point is mental health is just as important as phys physical health to the point where now when people come, patients come in for their annual physicals, I make it a point to ask, how is your mental health? I also would recommend that we don't wait for a crisis to do something. You know, reach out to your family, your friends, your healthcare team. We want to help you. The comments have been overwhelmingly positive. They're uh, just a great presentation, well needed. Uh, thank you for hosting this. And somebody, perhaps a, a history buff, did ask one question. It'll probably be the question that we'll finish up with. And uh, do you believe this is a continuation of the anti-Asian laws of the late 19th century, early 20th century? If there's any, any connection to that at all? Does somebody wanna speak on that one? Sure, I'll take a stab at it first um, and uh, let my awesome colleagues also follow up. Um, so absolutely, yes. Uh, you know, we're, we're all learning together. Um, and what I learned in this journey of the last few months um, as an Asian American, as somebody who um, was very, is very interested in cultural psychiatry um, and has had lots of experience in this area, I actually learned for the first time, and I'm embarrassed to say, about all of those anti-Asian laws that go way back. And um, there are uh, really informative talks about, about the history of anti-Asian um, laws, um, starting with, um, I believe, the Anti-Chinese uh, um, Exclusion Act. Um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing the name. But um, Asians have been othered, um, have been considered to not be truly American uh, for a long, long time. And it does have its roots um, going back hundreds of years. Um, I was born and raised in San Jose. I'm fully Vietnamese ethnically, but I am so much more American than, than I am Vietnamese. Uh, when I go back to Vietnam, I, I see it um, so clearly. And so I, in reading about how and learning about how Asians have been othered and seen as not American and learning how far back it goes has been really impactful to me um, considering my, my identity as an American. Okay, well, that was, that was a great answer. We're, we're kind of wrapped up. I want to reiterate, I'm looking at the comments. They were all positive. Um, thought it was a great program. You did a great job. It was a well-needed program for the Commonwealth Club and people would thank the Commonwealth Club for, for hosting it. And I want to thank all four of you wonderful doctors. I think you do wonderful work. I'm very impressed by 
by your biographies, which sadly I had to, to edit down a bit, but your accomplishments are truly notable in our profession. So thank you very much. And, uh, and to the people watching this, thank you for tuning into this Commonwealth Club event. I hope you'll continue to watch Commonwealth Club events in the future. So thank you and have a great day. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.